they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed Jacob there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of his word. You may be seated. Why write a book on Genesis? Well, you know, in the 20th century, particularly, Genesis became a lightning rod issue because of uh, the intersection of science and history. And as those things began to emerge and began to what seemingly uh, was contradict and conflict with what the Bible was saying, it really raised two important questions that we've been wrestling with ever since. And that is, what is the Bible and what do we do with it? And so we wanted to write a book really to dive into those questions of what is the Bible and what do we do with it? And Genesis was a great place to start. Did you guys enjoy Jared last week? Was it good? Do you like that? Um, and uh, I had a conversation with somebody this morning, actually, who's, uh, whose first week was last, was last week. She came to hear Jared, and, and she shared that she's been in a journey of, of deconstructing her faith and trying to reconstruct, figuring out what she doesn't believe and figuring out what she does believe. And I thought Jared really did a great job last week of helping us look at what is the Bible, as he said, and how do we interpret it? What do we do with it? That's what the book is about that he and Pete wrote as well, that we've been studying our connect group. We're going to wrap that up here in the next couple of weeks, Genesis for normal people. Um, but we've seen so far that the key to interpreting Genesis in any book of the Bible is interpreting it in the light of its historical context. In real estate, what's the rule? Location? Location. In Bible interpretation, in, in, in figuring out what the Bible means, the rule is context, context, context. And so we want to uh, interpret the Bible in the light of its historical context. We believe that intelligent people can take the Bible seriously because we can interpret it in the light of its historical context. We've seen that when we read Genesis, we're stepping into an ancient story. We read about somebody with two wives and servants, and a guy just appears and wrestles with somebody all night next to a river, like you do, right? And, and so we, we realize we're, just, we're stepping into an ancient story, a foreign story, something written on the other side of the planet 3,000 years ago, four, we don't know exactly, 
when these events uh, took place. We're stepping into a world that is different, and the authors have different assumptions than we do. Different assumptions about the world, different assumptions about life and what it means, different assumptions about the cosmos and science, different assumptions about God, uh, different assumptions about women, about minorities, um, about science, of course, than we do now. And so we realize that when we step into Genesis, and sometimes when we read these stories, we're horrified. Sometimes we should be. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago when, when, uh, when Abraham bound his son Isaac because he believed God told him to do that, and he was ready to sacrifice his son to God, and then God stopped him. That's a story that you would never, ever, ever want to try to emulate. If you're somebody who's, oh, I believe the Bible. Whatever the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Not on that passage. You wouldn't want to just do whatever Abraham does there. We would never, ever, ever want to treat our children that way. There has to be something else going on there. It's an ancient story. For, so, for example, we know in its historical context, Abraham was surrounded by cultures that sacrificed their children. They, they feared the gods and believed that they had, had to appease the gods by, by, by killing the thing they loved the most. It's unthinkable now. But in the light of its historical context, this story makes sense because God stops Abraham and says, that's not what I want from people who follow me. This is detestable to me. And so this story that is horrifying from our 21st century vantage point, looking back on it, is something that was actually a great leap forward in its time to value children and give them dignity and worth and, and, and to value families. And so that's the way that we interpret the Bible in the light of its historical context. And today we're wrapping up this series talking about, a series talking about Jacob and uh, his brother Esau and what God does in their lives. And we're going to talk a little bit about wrestling with your faith. Uh, we're going to talk about your story, um, the conflicts that you've faced in life. And whether it's faith or, just, or anything else, what is your story? And, and how has God brought you through? What have you learned? How have you wrestled with life? How have you wrestled with faith and where are you now? Memorial Day weekend is a, is a natural time of reflection, isn't it? When we, we think about people who have given their lives to our country, we think about people we've lost. And, and it's also a time where you kind of look back over the past year and you reflect and just think about, you know, what's happened over the past year. And so we're going to do a little bit of reflection uh, this, uh, this, uh, during this sermon as well. So this past week, I had a great week. My oldest son played drums in his school talent show. I'm so proud of him. Uh, he played a, a song called Live Forever by Oasis. It was a, a Britpop band in the 90s. When you see an eight-year-old playing a song from 1993, you know there's a 42-year-old dad somewhere behind the curtain living vicariously through that kid. And that, that was his story as well. But I'm, I'm so proud of him. He did a great job. And uh, I'm that dad who, you know, you don't have to ask me to show pictures of my kids. You'd be like, wow, the weather's been cooler lately. I'm like, yeah, you want to see my kid playing drums? And I just... I'm just so proud of them, and I want to share that. So, of course, I'm going to play a little bit of that video for you now. It's about 30 seconds long. Here's my boy uh, playing drums at his talent show this weekend. Let's check it out. Here's some Oasis. So proud of him. He, 
And you know, like if, if you're a parent or grandparent, uncle, aunt, you know, the kids work so hard and then they, they get to show off their talents. And so we were so proud of him. And of course, that was one of my favorite bands from the 90s. And that's where he got the idea from that song. And um, Oasis is, uh, is kind of an interesting story. It's made up of two brothers. They're five years apart. And their relationship is riddled with conflict. They, their band broke up a few years ago. And even now, like uh, for me, I still pay attention to them. And they're always like jabbing each other back and forth on Twitter. And, and there's this sibling rivalry that characterizes their relationship. Maybe it's made up just for publicity. If it is, it's brilliant. Because every story, everything that captures our attention, every story, movie, book, uh, novel, joke, any, anything at all that captures our attention, Cap TV, cable news, captures our attention because of conflict. There's just something about our experience of life that when we see a conflict taking place, we know, oh, I face conflict in life. That's part of the reality of life, and we're, somehow we're drawn to that, to see how that conflict will play out, and we want to see it brought to its resolution. That's what makes stories compelling to us. Um, and, and it seems like we live in a world of continual conflict, doesn't it? And as you look back over your life, uh, you have faced conflicts. And it doesn't just mean arguments. It can mean uh, adversity that you faced, challenges that you faced. Everybody's past is a story of conflict. And not only of the conflict, but how you responded to the conflict. So if you think over your life right now on a, a weekend where it's normal to reflect your year, your life in general, what conflicts have you faced? Uh, was, it, was it family conflict, maybe early in life or later, and, and maybe you still deal with some of those things, or maybe it was financial conflict. We're going to talk about that next week, actually, when we start the new sermon series. We're going to talk about uh, the good news for people who are financially stressed next Sunday, but maybe that's part of the conflict for you. Maybe it's conflict with disappointment or, or career realities, career paths, and, and the way things have played out, or uh, maybe it's something that is still continues to thwart you, and you're trying to make a decision and looking for guidance on how to deal with that conflict. What are some of the conflicts that you faced in life? We live in a world of conflict, and we feel uh, conflict. I had the honor this past week, uh, one, of the, one of the state representatives here asked me to give the invocation at the Arizona House of Representatives this past Wednesday, and then I got a, uh, a message the night before saying they canceled it because the uh, legislature released their budget and they stopped all the floor debates and they canceled the pledge and the prayer. So if you're the state of Arizona and you want to release a budget, I think you probably need the pledge and the prayer. Am I right? But So they, they canned me and they said, we'll take a rain check, we'll have you back some other time. But interesting, just, we, we just live in this world of division and conflict. So what conflicts have you dealt with and how have those conflicts affected you? Have you felt beaten down? Have you felt discouraged? Do you feel like you've overcome? Were you true to your values and those conflicts? Uh, were you honest with yourself? Maybe it's a, a faith conflict as well. And were you honest about your faith? And are you in a journey of trying to become honest or deconstruct or reconstruct? Have you become more mature? Have you become a healthier person through your conflicts? Or do you wish you had? And you just feel like, man, these are just dragging me down still. What's, what's your story? Of conflict. So in the story of, of uh, Jacob and Esau, like Oasis, it's a story of conflict. Even before they were born, Genesis 25 says when their mother, Rebecca, was carrying them, uh, her, her two sons were fighting in the womb. And this is supposed to be a funny story. So they're fighting in the womb already. 
and she prays, and, and God says to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And so she gives birth, and, and Esau is born first. And in the ancient world, being born first gave you lots of privileges. It gave you financial security over the, over the younger. It gave you prosperity. It was a blessing of fertility and land and things that really mattered in this agrarian ancient society. And so Esau is born first, but, but Jacob comes out grabbing his foot. He's, he grabs Esau's heel, like trying to pull him back in, like, get back in here. I want to be born first. So Jacob is, is wrestling with his brother to try to gain this blessing to be the firstborn, even from birth. And, and, and they grow up to be very different. Esau becomes a skillful hunter, a man of you know, the, the woods, the outdoors, and, and, and the scripture says he, Esau was super hairy. And Jacob is, is uh, a guy who likes to stay indoors. And, and uh, I went to a Christian college, and a guy there had a really hairy back, and we called him Esau. When you go to Christian college, you bully your friends using Bible characters. And, and so Esau and Jacob, are, they're just different people. You can see the yin and the yang. You can see why there's going to be a conflict set up. And, and Rebecca, their mom, plays favorites. She favors Jacob. Esau's kind of the man's man, and, and, and Rebecca favors Jacob. And after the setting, you know the rest of the story is going to be a train wreck. It's, it's a story of conflict. So uh, as they uh, grow up, uh, Jacob uh, spends time indoors, and Esau spends time outdoors hunting. And Esau comes in uh, hungry one day after hunting. And if you know the story, you know what happens. Um, Jacob is, is making this lentil stew. And Esau comes in starving. And he, he comes in and says, man, give me some of that stew. I'm going to die. I'm, I've, I've been out on a hunt and I'm, I'm just so hungry. And Jacob says, I'll give you some stew if you'll give me your birthright. The, the, the rights that were afforded to you from being the firstborn. I couldn't pull you back in by your heels. So now there's another chance. If you'll give me your birthright. I'll give you some stew. And so Esau decides, yeah, I'm, I'm going to die anyway. I'm going to starve to death, so just give me the stew. And yeah, you can have my birthright. And so Jacob, he, he hustles that birthright away from Esau. Now, neither of these guys are great guys. You know, we're used to, in, in at least in, in American television in the past, white hats and black hats. And you knew who the good guy was and the villain was. And neither one of these guys is necessarily a great guy. And there's a lot of deception that runs in the family because later on, um, Rebecca helps uh, Jacob deceive her father Isaac. It was important in the ancient world that the father gave a blessing to that firstborn before, before the father died. And, and, and so Esau's hairy, and so Rebecca helps Jacob put on like this goat skin, and Esau's blind. And again, it's supposed to be kind of a funny story, and, and they, but sad at the same time. And so they're hustling their dad. He, he thinks it's Esau, and so he blesses Jacob by mistake. And and gives him the blessing of the firstborn. Now, of course, it's an ancient story. It's foreign to us. We don't, under, you know, goat skins, back hair. We get the back hair part, probably. Some of us more than others. But it's, a, it's an ancient story. We don't understand exactly what's happening. But we know, I mean, this is, this is important as it's presented in the text. If you're Esau, and you have foolishly given up the rights of the firstborn, more land, more money, more security, your prestige, your reputation, things that are important to us now too. You, you gave that up because your brother kind of hustled you out of it. And now they deceive your father who is supposed to give you this meaningful blessing and instead he gives it to the younger brother. This is the story of sibling rivalry. It's the story of family dysfunction. Esau, I mean, definitely, and, and his mom was working against him too. Esau 
is definitely the black sheep of the family. He's somebody who, I mean, pardon the expression, but he just gets screwed over. Life's hard for him. Now, he goes on and God blesses him and good things happen to him. But think about that kind of family dysfunction, that kind of pain. And maybe that's a part of your story too. When you look back over your life, maybe it was divorce, maybe, maybe it was abuse. Maybe you had a great life, awesome. But maybe there have been marriage troubles and, 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 or bullying at school. And you just look back at people who were supposed to care for you and, and that you were supposed to feel safe around and it just didn't work out that way. Maybe there's an estranged relationship in your family people you can't really talk to anymore. Maybe part of that rift and estrangement is over faith questions. Maybe you were raised in a super religious home like I was, and I'm going to share a little bit of my story here today too, but, and, and you asked some questions and other people didn't, and that kind of made you the Esau of the family. But think about the hardship that Esau experienced. And, and um, there are many Esau's in our world. We're not the only ones if you feel like that. There are people in our country right now who feel like they used to have a good job and it's been taken away from them. And there are people who, in our state who feel like they would like to have opportunities and, and, and uh, they are fighting for those opportunities and they get caught up in the budget conflicts that we're going through now. And, but there are lots of people who feel like Esau. Um, there are people who feel forgotten by our society and maybe forgotten by God. Maybe, you know, where you are this morning, you're in a church like this because you're at a place where you're asking questions. Because you feel like, you know, as you look back over your life, some of the faith that was given to you doesn't quite add up. It doesn't quite make sense. There might be some disappointment mixed in with that. And, and, and you're just kind of wondering, you know, who is God or is there a God or what's next? What do I make of faith? And, and um, back in uh, 2001, I, uh, I had just the year from hell. In 2001, I, I graduated from college, which is normally a good thing. Um, I, I, by the way, I was on the six-year plan. I crammed six year, or crammed four years into six uh, to get through college, and so I graduated a little bit late. But um, I love college, and all my friends were there, and so I graduated that year and was going to move away. And um, the month after I graduated, I had a broken engagement, and then moved to another city where I was, you know, was given this amazing opportunity, this internship in a church. Actually, and as ridiculous as it sounds. It was, it was kind of a well-known church, and, and even in the church world, there's ladder climbing and jockeying for position, and this is just one of those things where, like, wow, you know, this is an opportunity you can't pass up. And so I, I moved to this church in a different city to work there, and I had a scholarship to go to seminary, free ride, and moved to this other city after a broken engagement and kind of missing my friends, and through some circumstances that were just completely out of left field, I lost my scholarship. And uh, I actually moved in with a family who housed seminary students. And so I moved in. Three days later, I found out I lost my scholarship. And they're like, yeah, we house seminary students. I had to move out. <laughs> I moved in. Three days after moving in, I moved out and slept on the couch with some friends who didn't expect me to be there. And they were nice enough to let me crash at their, in their apartment. And, and just got a job you know, serving and... and um, and stay there for several months, just trying to pick up the pieces. And just the, you know, I'd, I, was, I was done at that point. I'd had enough, you know, pain for, for six months and just kind of coasted uh, for, you know, the, the rest of the year. And this was like 9-11 happened right around that time. I moved back to Ohio, crashed with some other friends on their couch, and uh, got a job at a hotel uh, and uh, working third shift the night audit at a hotel. 
And it had been about a year since graduation and, and, and the broken engagement. And um, I probably read the Bible, and I was a religion major, okay, remember this, you know, I was supposed to go to seminary, I probably read the Bible once during that year, maybe prayed once or less during that year, because as I, as I started to feel the pain from these experiences, there was, there was some belief I had that God was supposed to protect me from pain. I'm trying to do all these good things, I'm a religion major in college, I'm going to seminary, and I'm a good little Christian boy. You know, I waited till 21 to drink beer. And I was like, I was like, wow, this Bud Light's really strong. How do people do this? And, and you know, I, was, I just lived the straight and narrow. And all of a sudden, like, my life is just falling, I mean, completely falling apart. Like, one step, like, systematically being dismantled over the course of a year. And now, as I look back over that previous year, this looks nothing like I thought it would. It's complete disappointment one after another. And I was mad at God. I blamed God. I had this, this unexamined belief that I, 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 shouldn't expect, I shouldn't experience pain in life. Things should go the way I expect. God should come through for me and, and give me comfortable circumstances in life. I, I had that view. I didn't know I had that view. You know what I'm saying? Until I found out that, oh, well, here I am. Now, I remember I was working in a hotel in the graveyard shift, and it was about 3 a.m., and because of the Gideons, what are there stacks of in hotels? Gideon Bibles everywhere. Like, you're, you know, they're, and they're more than just in the room. Like, there are shelves behind the check-in desk where there are more Gideon Bibles. And, and I hadn't, hadn't read the Bible in a long time. And I was, in, in all seriousness, I was, I was completely, uh, I, was, I was furious at God. How could you let this happen to me? Maybe some of you can identify. And um, almost, I don't know, a mixture, out of a mixture of desperation and tiredness and boredom, I picked up one of these Gideon Bibles, this brown cardboard cover on it. And I just started at Genesis chapter 1. And I read the creation story and that God, in chapter 1, he creates humans with, with dignity and in his image and his likeness. And then chapter 2 and chapter 3, Adam and Eve mess up and and then they hide from God. They're, they feel ashamed and afraid. And God actually comes looking for them. God's like, where are you? Where are you guys? And Adam's like, well, we, were, we did what you didn't want us to do, so we were afraid and we were ashamed because we saw we were naked and so we hid from you. And then if you were here for the series, what does God do when they're naked and ashamed? God gives them clothes. Okay? And then... Cain kills his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4. It's awful. This, this tragic, violent loss. What does God do? God doesn't execute him. God sends him away to wander. But he's even merciful to Cain. And then in chapter 6 and, and 7 and 8 and 9, we hear about Noah and the flood. And The reason given for the flood is that God is grieved at all the violence in the world. A lot, of people, a lot of us don't know that, do we? That part gets lost. Why did the, well, Of course, we have questions about all that. And we talked about that in the series as well. But the reason given is that God is grieved because of violence in the world. But yet God spares people. And he blesses Noah and his family. And then we get up to Abram and the calling of Sarah. And, they, and he gives them a child. He takes away Sarah's shame. Because it's assumed that the, it's the woman's fault. If you can't have a child, of course, in the ancient world, it's always the woman's fault. And, but God takes away her shame. 
and blesses her with a child. And before that, Sarah, as it's presented here, says, hey, Abram, maybe God wants to bless you through the, the servant girl, ancient world. Abraham has a relationship with her, and she has a son named Ishmael, and then they kick him out of the house, and, and, and uh, Hagar is her name, and Ishmael is her son, and they leave her to die in the desert. And she puts her little boy Ishmael over by a bush so she doesn't have to hear him while he cries and dies. And what does God do? God comes and he rescues them. That's Genesis 16, and I got to chapter 16 in the middle of a holiday in Express at 3 a.m., and I was bawling like a baby having this cathartic moment where I realized, man, I've had a hard year and nothing has worked out the way I thought it would. I didn't want this to be my story. I didn't think anything like this would be my story. But I, and I blame God. I've been mad. I thought God owed me something. And somehow God's, you know, fallen short on his end of the deal. And here I am. And I just bawled like a baby because over and over and over again, I saw instances of God's compassion in Genesis. A lot of people have the idea that the Old Testament is like God is mean. And then God goes to therapy and then we have the New Testament. Like God deals with his anger issues and then we have the New Testament. That's not true at all, actually. Again, what's the rule in Bible interpretation? Context, context, context. And we see a God who is merciful and compassionate. And it, it was catharsis for me. And it, was the, it was the beginning, it was a new beginning for me. It was a second chance for me. I became a youth pastor a few months later in a city by the beach and hung out at the beach and, uh, you know, played four chords like every youth pastor does for guitar songs, you know, with the kids. And I had, it was the beginning of a, what has been a great life for me. But that night at 3 a.m. reading Genesis, I saw the compassion and the mercy of God. Now, we say this is a place where you can express your faith and your doubts, and so some of us here, maybe, you, maybe you're an agnostic. Maybe you're an atheist. Maybe you're not sure that God exists. Maybe you don't think there is a God. But at least as far as the evidence we have in Scripture, at least what we read in Scripture, we can see that the idea of God that is so prevalent in our culture and in this, this conflict between you know, the religious right and secularism in our culture, the idea of God that we get in pop culture in America does not match the God that we see in scripture, even like Genesis. We get this idea out of culture that God is the moral police of society and, and it's all about who you're voting for. God wants you to vote a certain way and, and it's all judgment and condemnation and, and anger. But the God that we see in Genesis, at least whether you, even if you don't believe in God, the God we see in the scripture is a God of goodness and compassion. And so Jacob and Esau have this conflict and, and maybe you can identify with them or maybe you've been mad at God and there's been an, a rift in your relationship, an estrangement between you and God or an estrangement between you and other people. But now over time, Jacob starts to grow up a little bit. He starts to mature a little bit. God blesses him and he gets married and, and, uh, and that's, that's another story for another time. But um, he has a dream one night and in this dream, he sees a ladder, or probably more, more likely translated, a stairway from earth to heaven. It might be like closer to a Babylonian ziggurat, if you've seen those temples where you have steps that go up. Maybe Jacob sees one of those in a dream. And in this dream, he sees angels ascending and descending the stairway. And in this dream, God promises Jacob that he's going to have descendants. Remember, God promised that to his grandfather, Abraham. And he makes the same promise 
to Jacob. And he's going to bless Jacob and give him this lineage, which is extremely important in the ancient world. And Jacob is humbled for the first time in his life. He starts to realize that God has cared for me the whole time. And I've been, I've been you know, hustling and jockeying for position and, and trying to be first and grabbing my brother by the heel and swindling him out of his birthright and tricking my dad. And I've acted this way because I thought I was alone in the world and I needed to act that way to get ahead. But I realize that God has been with me and God is, is good and God is faithful to me and, and I don't have to act that way anymore. I'm not alone in this world. And so his faith becomes his own, not just his parents' faith, but now his, his faith is changing to where he can internalize something that is real to him and that means something to him that he can be passionate about, something that he doesn't have to fake that he believes something and then feels guilty about that and he's torn all the time. But no, I've really figured out what I really believe about God and, and life and purpose and where I, I fit into all that. And I can internalize that and I can be passionate about that. Now it's worth guiding me. I can live for that now. He matures. And so he fathers an enormous number of children by four women. <laughs> Another story. Including 12 sons. One of them is Joseph who becomes second in command of Pharaoh in Egypt. And that gets the Israelites to Egypt. And then that sets us up for the Exodus. Uh, when, when Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he builds wealth and... And then he returns to Canaan. And when he goes back to Canaan, he realizes that he's going to cross paths with his older brother. That he has uh, lied to, tricked, stolen from. He's going to cross paths with Esau. He knows that Esau wanted to kill him last time they saw each other. And so he prepares this huge gift to appease his brother, and he sends messengers ahead of him to meet with Esau, and he divides all of his possessions. He's still a smart guy, so if Esau kills one half of his people and possessions, he'll still have the other half. He, he assumes this is going to go really badly. And so one night, as they're closing in on Canaan and getting closer to Esau, Jacob sends his family and his possessions across the river. The river Jabok means to empty itself. The river empties itself. And he was left alone. And what happens next is, is described um, in the scripture that we read before the sermon. While he's alone, he's confronted by a being. The scripture calls it a man. He's alone. It's nighttime. He's been growing through his life, but he's not quite there yet. He's, getting, he's ready, and ready to face his brother who said he wants to kill him. You know, all, the, all the decisions he's made are about to come back to bite him. And he's confronted by this being and apparently it's it's God and Rembrandt did a version of this this is Jacob wrestling with the angel and it's it's kind of uh, misunderstood thinking it may have been an angel or but somehow it's a divine being but it apparently is is God whether it's God acting through a messenger or it's, or it's God because he says I saw God so we assume it's God Jacob confronts uh, is confronted by this being who apparently is God and then they start wrestling with each other. All right. So God appears to Jacob and he, and he starts wrestling with Jacob. Now I imagine if, you, if you've ever thought, you know, if God appeared to me, what would God say to me? Like of all the things, Lord, speak to me, guide me. I want to know your will. I want, to do, I, want, I want to do good things. I want you to guide me in life. God, please speak to me. You ever wonder what God would say to you? God appears to Jacob and he's like, want to wrestle? Not, not exactly what you would picture God saying to you, but that's, that's apparently what happens. 
And so they wrestle, all, they fight, they struggle all night. God appears to Jacob right before he's about to face all the bad decisions he's ever made and the consequences of them. God appears to Jacob and he fights with God. And God fights back and he let, God lets Jacob fight with him. The fight goes on all night. God allows Jacob to wrestle with him and to struggle with him and to fight him and kick and claw and hair pull. And I go back to my professional wrestling watching days, you know, with Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. You know, all night this just goes on and on and on. A rake of the eyes, a steel chair to the back perhaps. God fights with Jacob and he lets Jacob fight with him all night. Jacob fights God for his blessing like he always has. He wants God to bless him. God asks him his name. In the ancient world, names held power. He says, my name is Jacob. And God says, not anymore. Your name is going to be Israel, which means to struggle with God. One who wrestles with God. One who struggles with God. That's going to be your name. That's your identity from now on. And then he touches Jacob's hip. And his hip is wrenched out of socket. He'd been fighting all night. And God allowed him, God was gracious to him. And allowed him to fight and struggle and kick and, and punch. God was patient with him, allowed him to do that. And then at the end, Jacob was reminded of his mortality and his humanity. And with one touch, he walks with a limp for the rest of his life. And, you know, we look at stories like this, and we're, once again, we're reading an ancient story that is foreign to us. If nothing else, you would see in this story somebody who is fighting with God and goodness and life and his own choices. And he comes out a humble, more mature, wiser, more compassionate individual. And his, his wrestling with faith in God and how you get through life and how you make it in this world, he comes out better. And he has the scars to prove it. He, he's not the young guy swindling his brother anymore. He's, he's an old man who bears in his body the scars of life. He's been weathered. He, he, he's, seen, he's seen what life uh, you know, can, can bring, the good and the bad. And now he walks with a limp. Maybe you can identify with Jacob. Um, there is no growth, by the way, without a struggle. And in your conflicts, your story that you're imagining, whatever it is that maybe in the past or something that you've been wrestling with for a long time, there is no growth without a struggle. And even the, the, the most difficult night of your life, like this was for Jacob, can be a time where God can actually grow you and mature you and humble you and help you to understand more fully what life is all about. Isn't that true? Isn't it true? Even We don't even really grow in the comfortable times. It's in the times that are, that are most difficult that we actually grow. If you are going through a difficult time right now, and that conflict is with you right now, maybe you're going through something right now, I would invite you to do this. In the discomfort, and maybe you're angry at God, and maybe you're wondering why things have turned out the way they have, and maybe you're disappointed. You're stressed at work. You're overworked. You're, there's financial stress. I would invite you to do this. Consider how you are being challenged to grow through these circumstances that you're facing right now. Consider how you're being challenged to grow because there is no growth without a struggle. And if you can somehow 
do some spiritual judo on this. And these circumstances, this conflict is coming at you. If you can kind of use its own weight against it and you can kind of throw it this way, then you can, you can say, you know, I, I was going through a very difficult time that threatened to really hurt me, to bury me. But instead, I've decided to, lot get, to let God grow me. And I can come out of this better than I was. I can come out of it more mature, wiser, humbler, more uh, compassionate. More humble, compassionate. Humbler is not a word, I'm pretty sure. More humble, compassionate, just like Jacob. How is God trying to grow you right now in the struggle that you have? Maybe it is a faith struggle. And, and my story is one of deconstruction and reconstruction. Maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe that's what's drawing you to this church. Uh, as I've said before, I was raised in a, in a strict Christian home that definitely believed in, a, in, a, in a, a fundamentalist view of religion and interpretation of the Bible. And, and the belief was that God created the world in six literal days, 6,000 years ago. And, and 95% of scientists in the world are in a conspiracy to deceive us you know, about, about how the world was created. And, and, and not only that, but you know, we're, we're supposed to distrust human reason and, and discovery and curiosity. And we just trust God and... and if you've grown up in that kind of a world, you know what, what that is and what it leads to. It's a heavy weight to carry when you feel alone in the world, like it's us versus them. It's us few and no more, and the rest of the world is out to get us, and they're all going to hell in a handbasket. And it's just a tough, tough way to grow up. And in my early 20s, I started to go through questions about that same time, actually, when, when I started to really grow and ask, you know, what do I really believe, and, and what do I think is true, and is God real, and, and what about religion, and is it just a crock? Because I'd seen religion used by that time, even in my early 20s, I'd, I'd realized religion is a very useful tool to manipulate for political purposes. Anybody else ever had that observation, by the way? Maybe, maybe, just maybe. And is, is that just what it is? It's like a tool to control people, and is that what all this is? And then through my 20s, I went through this experience of deconstructing, of, of taking out the, you know, the, the, pulling out another brick in the wall, right? And, and just trying to tear down, what is it that I, that I believe and don't believe? And it was an extremely painful journey. And if you've gone through an experience like that, you know there's a lot in that sentence. Because you know the pain that can be involved in that. Where you, th there, there are people in your family you don't have a good relationship with anymore because of that. Or there are people who were good friends of yours and you don't have a good friendship with them anymore. Or a church family you lost when you went through that struggle. All of those questions boil down to what the Bible is and how do we interpret it. The things we've been talking about in this series. And so maybe that's your conflict right now. That's, maybe that's what you're wrestling with. And probably the main point that we're trying to make in this series and to give all of us hope who are thinking people and, and we want to deconstruct and reconstruct and, and not just tear things down but, but come up with what are we for? Like what do we believe Probably the main point is we're asking this question, what if the Bible is not a science textbook? What if it's not so, uh, what if it's not essentially dictated by God, but God has partnered with people? And instead of being a science textbook, it's a record of people like Jacob, who, whose name was changed to Israel, who wrestled with God. We've got that graphic up there somewhere. Thank you. Appreciate that. What if the Bible is not a science textbook, but an honest record of people wrestling with God? Because if that's what the Bible is, now intelligent people can take the Bible seriously. Because it's the story 
of people who are doing the same thing you are. It's the story of people who are wrestling with God. It's the story of people who are facing conflict in all kinds of ways, sibling rivalry, financial hardship, um, people lying about them, people uh, abusing them and taking advantage of them like Esau. And how do they overcome and how do they deal with all that and what it means to live with wisdom that Jared talked about last week. Because if the Bible's not a science textbook, but at least, but instead it's an honest record of people wrestling with God, now it can be your story. It can inform your story. You can find yourself in it and it can get into you. And now there's a whole new future that's possible when it comes to spirituality and faith and, and figuring out what life is and, and, and our purpose in it. Next Sunday, we're starting a new sermon series called Straight Out of Nazareth. I've received so many comments about the title of this. I've heard everything from I love it to that's incredibly dorky. Like all, and everything in between, I'll own it all. I think it's true. Um, but we're going to start this new series. What this really is is a study in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke's Gospel is known as the Gospel to the Marginalized. People who were outsiders, people who felt like a nobody. And, it, and Luke shows how Jesus met those people where they are. And Luke gives us a picture of who Jesus is. How many of us realize there are a lot of Jesuses in our culture as we are attempting to deconstruct or maybe reconstruct our faith? And so next week, we're going to start this series about who Jesus really is. Probably could have uh, copped Eminem, we're the real Jesus, please stand up. Probably could have done that one as well. But we, we want to look, who is Jesus in Luke? We started with Genesis here. Now we're going to move on to who is Jesus. I promise you, if you've grown up in church your entire life, it's a, it's a bold promise, but I'm, I'm pretty confident in this. I promise you, you will learn something new about Jesus in this series. You will have some light bulbs that are going to come on. If you have some friends that are in this journey of deconstructing and reconstructing, invite them. This is, this is the time. As we look at who Jesus is, I want to show a quick promo video from uh, Luke chapter 4 where Jesus announces his mission about what he's come to do. Let's check it out. familiar with that track, you understand why we can only play the instrumental version here in church. Somebody told me, we, we tested this last week here, and a guy heard it, and he's like, oh, he's like, I just had a flashback of my mom ripping that tape out of my hands and throwing it in the trash. So straight out of Nazareth starts next week. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. I want to close in a time of prayer before we sing a final song. And I want to ask you, what's your story? Every story is a story of conflict. Whether it's sibling rivalry in the band Oasis or it's, it's Jacob and Esau, Esau, or if it's what you've experienced, whatever is your conflict. Not every conflict has a fairy tale ending. In this particular story here, when Jacob confronts Esau, 
He expects Esau to kill him. But instead, this brother who has been hurt, wounded, taken advantage of, he runs to meet Jacob. He throws his arms around his younger brother, his younger twin brother, and they cry in each other's arms. And they release 20 years of conflict in this catharsis. And Jacob tries to give gifts to Esau, but Esau says he has plenty. And Esau offers to travel with Jacob, but Jacob politely declines. And he says, just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord, in, the eyes, in your eyes. Let me find favor in your eyes. And so they parted ways and they set up their families in different areas. Esau forgave Jacob. Esau has been blessed by God. Esau shows Jacob the grace of God and forgives him. Jacob blesses Esau. Whereas he had stolen a blessing from Esau, now he blesses Esau. But their families do remain separate. Not every conflict has a fairy tale ending, but as much as possible, we don't have to agree on everything in order to make peace and cooperate and mend relationships, if at all possible. Sometimes it's not. So I have several questions for all of us to consider here. We're all, we're alone with God, maybe wrestling with God, struggling with God, like Jacob. What is your conflict that you've been facing? What is your story? Are you discouraged? Do you feel beaten down? Do you walk with a limp? even if that's how you feel and you have every right to feel that way. Another question is, how, how are you growing in this conflict? How is God growing you? There is no growth without a struggle. How is God growing you? Maybe right now it is financial stress that we're gonna talk about next week when we kick off the Straight Outta Nazareth, uh, Nazareth series. Maybe it's work issues, maybe it's family. Maybe it's pain from the past. Maybe it's ongoing family conflict. Whatever it is for you. How does God want to grow you right now? How maybe God, how, how has God been growing you maybe? And you don't always see that. But looking back, you're thinking, you know what? I am humbler, more humble. <laughs> I am wiser. I am more compassionate. I've become better in this. Maybe if that's the case, you just say, God, thank you for growing me. Thank you for how I've grown here on this Memorial Day weekend as we look back. Thank you for how I've grown. Are there people that you need to forgive? And this is a tough one. Esau was able to forgive Jacob. It had been 20 years. It had been a long time. We found that it's, it's helpful to talk about what forgiveness is and what it isn't. Forgiveness is not pretending it never happened. Forgiveness is not excusing it like it wasn't a big deal. Forgiveness is not trust. That's a big one. Forgiveness doesn't mean you trust a person again. Trust is earned over time. Forgiveness can be instant. It's not trust. What forgiveness is, is releasing the person from the consequences of what they did. It's releasing, letting go. It's as though we're, we're holding that person by their shirt collar and we just decide, you know what, I'm going to let you go. This is tiring. I'm just going to let you go. And as we release that other person, we immediately discover that the one who has been most released is us.
So who do you need to forgive? Here's another tough one. Do you need to apologize to somebody? If we're honest, we haven't been just hurt in life. Some of us have, well, we all have in other ways. We've hurt others in life. Is there a way that we could make it right? Like Jacob, how, being more humble and wiser and, and older and more mature and walking with a limp, is there a way we could make it right? Is there a relationship or a conflict where there needs to be a boundary set? Because even though Jacob and Esau, they cry in each other's arms, they still don't hang out together anymore. They bless each other and they go their separate ways. Sometimes it's just better that way. If, if it's possible to be completely reconciled and, and, and live in close proximity to each other, excellent. That's always a good goal. But it's not always possible. There may not be a fairy tale ending. We don't have to agree on everything in order to make peace as far as possible. So is there some kind of boundary that needs to be set, a healthy boundary in a relationship? And then finally, again, as we reflect over our stories, how have you grown? And how is God trying to grow you now? If you are wrestling or struggling with God, you're not alone in that. Because as we've seen in this series, the Bible is not a science textbook essentially dictated by God. We, I believe God has inspired the, the scripture somehow and that God speaks through it. But what if it's the record of people just like us wrestling with God? And if that's the case, then it is a rich repository of wisdom. And wisdom means how to live well. And I can go to the scripture and, and now after this holiday weekend, I can make some, some decisions and I'm gonna, I'm gonna seek wisdom and and uh, I want to partner with God to grow and let God grow others through me. God, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives and what you want to do the rest of today and in this next series and straight out of Nazareth and the summer that we have ahead as well. It's going to be a, a cool summer for us. Um, we thank you for speaking to us through the scripture, for meeting us where we are, for being willing to wrestle with us, and for growing us. In Jesus' name, everybody said.